This is Academes, a podcast about women in academia, living the dream, or are we? My name is Katie or Kathleen Grogan. I usually go by Katie. Um, I'm a postdoc fellow at Penn State right now, and I am what I guess we would call an interdisciplinary biologist. Um, I dabble in, I'm a geneticist, I do evolutionary biology, I do animal behavior, I even do some human biology. disease ecology, I I do a lot of things. I bring together a lot of things. Um, And we talk about uh, when you're a scientist, you can either go very, very deep on one subject or you can sort of have a shallower grasp of many topics. And I am one of those who has a shallower grasp of many topics that I like to integrate into my work. Great. Well, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about some of that work. Um, Before we talk too much about that, though, I wanted to give anyone who's listening a little bit of background about how you, somebody in (laughs) biology, and I, somebody in health services research, um, came to meet each other. Um, And so my recollection is that I had a colleague on Twitter um, suggest that we should get points on Twitter um, with the highest, (laughs) which I think would do really good for like um, minimizing the amount of drama on Twitter. But anyway, um, but with the highest points going to those who offer the best summaries of of the evidence. Um, And he pointed in the direction of a thread that you posted about gender bias in academia. And um, I was, you did this, like, I don't even know how many points there were, but it was multiple and you went through in a really thorough fashion. And I was like inspired by that, but also um, it was really informative about gender bias in academia. And um, so I wanted to find out why you did it, particularly given now (laughs) that I know that you're not like in political science or in some field where I would expect somebody to be really well read on gender bias in academia. So can you talk through um, how you came to do such a thorough yet concise tweet about gender bias in academia? So I will, I'll start with the background of how I got the knowledge and then I'll tell you uh, where that Twitter thread came from. (laughs) Um, So I'm by no means an official expert. I have no official credentials in studying things like gender bias or sociocultural context of things. Um, I am in an anthropology department and I, I did do some, my graduate, one of my graduate programs was an evolutionary anthropology department, but um, that was all biology um, related. And however, I am a young woman in STEM. I'm not a person of color, I'm white, um, and I'm not disabled, but I am a woman. And it, uh, I guess, through the course of my graduate career, I 
started to hear stories of women who had been clearly un, undeservedly denied tenure um, and, and also people of color and, you know, examples where this person has brought in a million dollars in grant funding and is denied tenure compared to a white male who's brought in $40,000 and fewer papers and is given tenure. And um, that started me sort of thinking about, okay, if this is a job that I want, I need to know what the context is. I, if the, if the same way that if this was a study site I wanted to go to in my research, I would need to know everything about it. And, you know, so I started collecting um, published papers that had decent sample sizes. Um, I, you know, there, there wasn't a lot when I started graduate school in 2008, but um, through the last decade or so, there's actually been a surprising number of really well done, and not that the stuff before wasn't well done, but it generally had much lower sample sizes, but a surprising number of papers that have sample sizes in the thousands. Um, and I just started collecting them. I have a folder in my on my desktop that's called Academic Atmosphere, and that's just where I put them so that I am aware that that I can protect myself against the biases, um, or at least, you know, sort of plan for them. Um, and so I've been collecting these and I, I did a, a postdoctoral fellowship at Emory University where um, I also spent a lot of time talking. It's a it's a postdoc that's designed to encourage women and minorities into biomedical research. And so we spent a lot of time talking about the barriers, why a program like this is necessary, why what what barriers exist, how they affect your daily life and your journey through science and how we can overcome them. And that actually, you know, accelerated it. We were all sharing uh, papers and every time someone found something interesting. Um, so it wasn't just me. And um, so that's that's one thing. So I'm an unofficial expert in my, you know, I feel like I know quite a bit about it, but I have no official credentials. Um, and then the Twitter thread, uh, There's there's been a lot of discussion in the last year to two years about the Me Too movement in STEM and how harassment really holds women back. And and it really, really does. That That is a huge problem. Um, that actually is not something that I have ever personally really experienced on a large scale. And, and so it got me thinking about, okay, if we can address that you know, what What else might go under the radar and, and gender bias, which is not harassment, but um, is a systemic, you know, discrimination is sort of the next step. They're both connected. They are, they are interconnected concepts, but they are, you know, it's a Venn diagram as opposed to one topic. Um, and so that Twitter thread, uh, there was, there was a lot of stuff going on about uh, with me too. Um, I happened to, um, be taking the day it was, it was a day I had off the day before um, the the Justice Kavanaugh's hearings in front of Congress and um, so I was gearing up for that we were in the middle of that storm and I knew I was going to watch them because um, just like the Anita Hill testimony I knew these were going to be this was just going to be a really important moment um, and I happened to get on uh, 
I was going through some journal table of contents and I happened to see this nature careers column on that was titled how women can combat gender bias. And man, I am just so sick of being told that this is my problem to solve. I'm so tired of it. Um, and, and I knew that I had, and I was, I was, I was out walking the dog and I just, uh, I just started steaming. I was just raging in my head and I got home and I opened up my folder of academic atmosphere papers and I started looking through there because I was like, this is bull crap. Um, and uh, so, you know, I had, and I read the, the column first and there is some good advice in there. I'm not knocking it. Um, there are, they address it from the point of view of the fact that this is a reality. So we have to learn how to deal with it, but man, uh, it just made me very angry. And so I pulled up 20 or 30 papers and I just started, I got on Twitter and, and sometimes I'm, it's just very difficult for me to keep my mouth shut on Twitter. And so um, I just started, but I knew that I had the statistics, right? And so I started with the statistics and it's a little bit of a sarcastic Twitter thread. It basically calls out women and says, hey women, you know, here are things you should solve. Um, you know, you have somehow get yourself nominated to the editorial board of all your journals and somehow ask your colleagues to ask you to review papers and um, somehow, you know, make sure that you have women on your reviewing panel because if you don't, Eh, your your paper is going to be 5% less likely to be accepted. Um, just things like that. And, you know, uh, <laughs> I didn't, I did not expect it to go viral. I, I guess we would call it viral. I don't know. Um, I went to make lunch and then I came back and I was like, oh, oh no. Oh, this is bad. This is very bad. Um, but by that point it was too late. And, you know, it's, I stand by it. Um, it was, it was stressful, but I stand by what was in there. And, and I think that, you know, I've, I've actually gotten a real, a lot of really positive responses about it, including this podcast. So tell me, tell me about that, that nature column what it sounds like it parroted a lot of the tropes about women kind of taking the situation into their own hands and what what women can do to make the situation better tick through some of those things you already talked about like get on you know um review panels and you know get on your editorial board and what are the things that you were sick of hearing that in these are my words, not yours, sounded like victim blaming. I mean, it is victim blaming. That is exactly what it is. Um, and not that we would call ourselves victims, but but from a stick definitional standpoint, we are victims of gender bias. That's, you know, um, I, I, I so reading through that column, you know, there was one woman who wears her regalia to teach because she doesn't she wants everyone to understand that she has a PhD too and that she deserves to be on that stage. And I don't fault her for that. Um, I think we're getting better at not automatically assuming that the woman sitting in with the open door is the secretary, but it definitely still happens. Um, or even the graduate student, you know, whatever. And I guess I just... I can't remember exactly what was all in that paper, um, in that column. The column, I mean, like I said, it actually had some fairly good advice. I talked to the editor of it later, and she informed me that the title for the online version was not the title that was originally chosen. It was chosen by um, the whoever handles yeah, titles. Yeah, they'll do that. <laughs> um, and so, so 
so the title, she was, you know, she made the point that the title and the content of that paper were a little different. Um, they weren't necessarily saying that women should obviously solve this. Their point was more that this is the reality we live in. And so here are things you can do to address it, which honestly is not all that dissimilar from what I'm doing in collecting these articles, right? It's, it's a reality. And so I want to arm myself. And that's what these women were talking about. Um, but the title was very problematic. Um, I, like I said, I'm really tired of being told that it's the problem of people of color to solve racism and the problem of women to solve sexism and, and gender bias. And, and, and because, because there's, there's only so much you can do when you are not allowed in positions of power enough to make a difference. Um, and there's only so much you can do, you know, to change. The, uh, one of the things my dad always says is that, is that, you know, the only thing you're in control of is your own behavior. And I can work on my behavior on gender bias, but I, it's very difficult for me to, to make somebody else change their behavior through my own actions, right? Like I can ask them to do it, but I can't actually make them do it. Um, and the people who are perpetuating the gender biases are basically, let's say the people in power, they're the people in power. Um, they're the ones who are making these decisions and, and I'm not one of those. And so there's not a whole heck of a lot I can do about it. Um, and to hear someone, to hear nature, which has had a fairly steady history of problematic columns or pieces, they hit about one or two every year where they just really miss uh, the social context of what their title or their cover or whatever uh, says. And to hear nature tell me that it was my job to solve the fact that I'm going to have a harder time getting my manuscripts published, getting a tenure track job, um, you know, getting collaborations, getting speaking engagements, et cetera. To hear that, to hear them say that you, 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 Katie, need to solve this was just infuriating. <laughs> and so, um, I'm glad that you brought up this, um, I'll call it a paradox, of feeling frustrated by the assertion that you should be handling this problem. But you did open with this idea that, you know, you were gathering this compendium of articles about gender bias in academia as a way of, I mean, you made a really great analogy about, you know, if you're looking for a study site, you're scoping, you want to know everything about it. So you, you, you go unprepared. Um, you talked about, you know, planning, protecting yourself and preparing. So what has, if, if you were to write um, and I know that you have now in response to this Twitter feed. So I'd love for you to talk about that. But um, and I guess I'm I'm as interested in whom you would target for the action as you would like what the act, what the content of the act of the, the recommendations would be. So like previous literature, and I totally agree, um, is usually pretty victim blaming. Um, would you target the the senior people? Would it be senior women? Would it be senior men? Would it be people um, in positions of power? Would it be the system? I mean, what needs 
shift, what needs to change. Um, so that's that's one component that I'm interested in hearing about. And then also like, what is the content of that? What what recommendations do you have? How are you planning and protecting yourself with this information? Oh, wow. Well, so, okay. So the, so what I'm doing for myself is very different than what I would recommend um, the system do to change itself. Um, so you are correct. I, I wrote a full column based on this Twitter thread and I, I included some suggestions at the bottom and they were just suggestions that I had thought of or that I have talked to other people about. They are not pulled from the literature, although I think that they're, it's pretty obvious uh, that they're fairly well thought out. Um, so in terms of who I would target, um, I, you know, honestly, I would target, this is a problem that everybody needs to quote, lean in to solve. Um, this is not a problem that can be solved without the inclusion of every group, senior, um, junior, women, men, non-binary people, people of color, disability, I mean, all of it. It's, you can't ask the marginalized to solve it, but you also can't ask the non-marginalized to solve it without input from the marginalized. Like it's going to take a group effort. Um, and you know, the thing that I'm a little, I'm hopefully encouraged by is that scientists are collaborative. We are good at stuff like this. We, this is not a hard solve to be honest. Um, it's things like being aware. And, and so this is, so this is, these are places where I'm doing it myself and also recommending others do it. Um, being aware of who you cite. Are all of your first authors or last authors men or are they equally gender distributed or are they proportional to the number of senior people in the field, right? Um, and that's a little hard to quantify, um, but it's something that Ed Yong talked about from The Atlantic. He talked about um, who he had quoted and how he noticed um, through a friend pointing out to him that all, most of his pieces quoted mostly men and he spent two years trying to solve that. And that immediately sparked the idea in my head, well, you know, if the problem, one of the problems is that papers with female last authors don't get cited as much, well, that's something we can all solve. Um, it takes a little bit of extra effort in terms of, you know, checking the first and last name of the person who is the last or the first author, but but that's not a, a super difficult check Compared to how much time we all spend formatting manuscripts, um, you know, to go into a journal submission. So that's not a big deal. Um, being aware of the word choice in your letters of recommendation. Um, that's another area that I'm working on. Um, and for me, one of the biggest things that I think we desperately need is, is more information. I know, I know that's sort of a cop out in many places where uh, it where oh we know there's a problem let's let's just co we'll collect more information because we're not sure what the scope is but we have some very good evidence that these things are happening but we don't know what they look like on the ground in every organization in every university in every classroom etc and i'm not saying that we need that information for every single classroom but i would love to see societies that i'm a part of and journals that I submit to publish statistics on how many of their members are women, people of color, 
it's fit into whatever census category you want to talk about. I'd love to see them publish statistics on their reviewers for journals, on who submits and who gets accepted, et cetera. Those are really, really easy ways to identify a problem. And it amazes me that we don't do that. Like, how is it possible that we don't know how many speakers at a conference were men or women? And just as a as a matter of of who of journal or of the society, um, you know, yearly report. Um, I'd love to see those kind of information. I think those are the first step to identifying where areas that we need to work on and then secondly the other thing that drive one of the things that drives me crazy is that everyone gives these super vague targets we are going to increase diversity and inclusion stop it, it, what do you even mean by that that is that is the most vague non-planny sentence I've ever heard of. You would never write a grant that just says we are going to measure the health effects of this thing. What what does that even mean? It means it's nothing. It's it needs to be operationalized into targets. And I don't care if they're you know, there's there's lots of different ways to talk about car targets. There's pros and cons of having things like a percentage you want to hit or um a number or you know, there's there's pros and cons, but I think that that in, we need to start thinking about this as scientists. That is our training. And we are doing ourselves a massive disservice by not doing that. And just saying, we're going to measure diversity and inclusion. We're going to work to increase it. We're going to, you know, do our best. Like, all of that, we've all we've heard all that before. None of that is useful. No one would fund you based on that. And if you don't apply the same rigor to your efforts to make STEM more inclusive and more diverse, then you obviously don't care about it as much as you do your science. And and that's fine, but like acknowledge that. You know, if you aren't gonna put targets and stuff on, if you're not really, really gonna think about this and think about how you're gonna measure it and how what efforts you're gonna take and the pros and cons of each of them, then, then I'm not interested in talking to you. I don't wanna hear what your efforts are because I don't think they're going to be successful. Um, so that's one way. Um, and, you know, there are programs out there that have done a really great job. Um, there and, and or universities that have done a really great job of recruiting and retaining women and people of color departments, et cetera. Talk to them. They have something figured out. Like, what is it about, you know, their their department that seems to attract and retain diverse groups of people? And then, you know, and this one's a little bit more of a problem. But if there's a group um, that you say you've interviewed four people for a position in a department and, you know, three women and one guy and, and the women all decline and the guy takes the job, why you know, can you get an anonymous answer from those three men, women about why they didn't take the job? What, you know, what was the, what was the reason? Um, and I think that would be best handled by like a third party, um, some kind of consulting firm, et cetera. But um, these are things that we do through all other bits of our science and somehow it just hasn't made it here. And I'm not sure why, um, 
But I'm, and that was part of the point of the column was to remind people that, you know, you have this skill set, you can apply it to this problem and I'll bet it'll, well, we can solve it pretty easily. So, you know, you, something that I want to follow up on that is a paradox in my mind. Um, you talked about kind of some people viewing gathering more data as um, a cop out like, oh, we know it's a problem, but we just, you know, let's let's investigate it further. Um, but I think it's a point well taken because uh, this paradox that I'm thinking of in my own experience is that the data are, are very clear about the fact that there's gender bias in academia. I mean, women uh, kind of rise. Th- there's clearly a leaky pipeline. Women get paid less. Um, there are right. to- There's tons of evidence kind of at the collective level. Um, but something that we talk a lot about here, um, uh, those of us who work on academes, is this issue of are we crazy? Like, are we making too big of a deal about this? Because on a on a granular individual level, um, certainly all of us have had experiences where where it's very clear that there's there's something going on and there's something upsetting. But on the individual level, it's very easy to explain those differences in pay, for example, away. Um, it's very easy to, you know, a co- to excuse a comment based on, oh, that's just, you know, he, he just, you know, that's just his way. Um, and so I often have the experience of, second guessing myself essentially like is this really an 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 issue um and i always come back to it is i mean the data say this is a huge issue and it needs targeting and just because i don't experience explicit examples of gender bias on a day-to-day basis doesn't mean that it's not happening um but i wonder if you can talk about your own personal experience um, if any at all with gender bias in academia, and it doesn't have to be like huge examples. I mean, you talked about, you know, you haven't um, experienced something, uh, thank goodness, uh, horribly explicit uh, related to harassment. But I wonder if you could talk through this kind of um, juxtaposition of knowing that this is a problem at a national and international level um, and contrasting that to your own experience or comparing it in um, to your own experience? Well, so in terms of collecting more data, sort of two things come to mind. Um, I, I want to address that just really quickly. Um, one, I think that collecting on a, on a large scale, we know this is happening. But in order to set clear and specific targets for societies, departments, journals, whatever, they have to have the data to be able to say, oh, you know, you can't you can't make a decision about what our target should be if we don't know where our baseline is. And so that's sort of the data that I'm I guess when I say I want I want us to collect more data, that's really what I mean for the use of of setting targets and really making progress as opposed to collecting more data to convince ourselves that it's there. There is definitely a group of of people who are unconvinced and I think they're just going to remain unconvinced and that's fine. Um but you know it's it's clear to the rest of us that this is a problem and so that's what i mean about collecting more data um and the other thing you know you talk about about sort of dismissing on an individual level your own experience of pay gap or whatever at my own experience of the pay gap um 
And the first thing that it made me think of was the um, university, the lawsuit by Katrina Miranda against the Department of Chemistry and, and Biochem at University of Arizona that was filed just recently. Um, you know, it's easy to explain why she was paid less than a, another professor who was tenured at the same time who was a guy. Okay. That's one one case. That's fine. But it's hard to explain how not a single woman in that department is making more than the average male salary in that department. Even if you compare, if you control for time in the department. That's where, you know, anecdotal turns into data. And we realize that on an individual level, sure, you can excuse it. But... But on a, once you have more than your own individual level, it becomes a pattern. And, you know, so this is and, and this is something that I've heard before. Um, I, I know of a few women professors who, you know, discovered later in their career that they were being vastly underpaid compared to their male colleagues who had been tenured at the exact same time, like thirty, forty thousand dollars less. Um, and and that is just ridiculous um but you know again it's that's an easy one to dismiss until you know the history of the department you know that the department has a history of not tenuring women and of paying them less and of only putting them in lecture roles and then you start to say you know i don't think this is about me actually i think this might be someone else's problem um and as far as on my, in my, from my own experience, um, you know, it's, it's sort of odd that this is an area that I care so deeply about given my own sort of, honestly, like a lack of experience. I have not had, I don't have a massive list of people who have harassed me or made sort of gender biasy comments against me in the field or in, in, you know, in my job. I don't have an experience of having a pay gap. I'm, and part of that is that I'm a postdoc, which means that I'm on an NIH salary mandate. There's no gender bias there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, but I know that if I get a job offer in the next year or two, that I'm going to have to be very, very careful to make sure that I negotiate in a nice and pleasant way <laughs> to equal the same salary as as the guys, because because that's just a fact of life. Um, and so maybe maybe a lot of this is more, you know, I managed in grad school. It seems like in grad school, what you more experience is the harassy kind of bias. Mm -hmm. You experience a little bit more of the. Um, sexually charged comments, um, come-ons, et cetera. And then as you get older, it seems to be more of a bias. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, I don't seem to have reached the bias level yet. That I can tell. Um, the only, and this is completely conjecture, the only feeling that I have, the only thing that I seem to have had very, a lot of difficulty with is honestly getting published because I publish with a team of all women. And my average time to publication is something like 14 mm -hmm. months. Um, and in my field, that's that's not exceptional, but it is exceptional to be the average. Mm -hmm. um, it's normally more like six to nine months. Um, and and it's it's a little, un, you know, and, and maybe that's just, that could just be me, right? 
I have no idea. I have no evidence at all. Um, Back to your but it's been point so- about collecting data. So we have a baseline. <laughs> right. But it's been, you know, it's, 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 so, so I don't have any of that experience personally. And part of that, honestly, is because I've been protected by exceptionally strong female PIs. Mm-hmm. Um, my PhD advisor was, was just an incredible advocate for women in STEM. And um, she just does, she does not get enough credit for, for the work that she does. And, um, you know, you, everybody in the department knew that if you messed with her students, you were not going to enjoy the result. And um, that was, I, I will be forever thankful for her, for her behavior, for her shielding us from anything. And I'm not saying anything would have happened, um, but, you know, she was high, she was very aware of the potential biases and problems that we could face. And she was very clear to us that she had our back. Mm. Um, and that was really fantastic, you know. Um, and and also, you know, moving through the rest of my postdoc career, et cetera, I've been pr- I've been privileged, fortunate enough to end up in labs where there, it's a very obvious, we, there's a very obvious lab rule that we care about these things and we are not going to tolerate any kind of gender bias, et cetera, um, harassment, any of those things. Um, everybody gets jobs. Everyone has to clean up their own mess. Everyone, you know, we rotate who handles note taking. So it's not just the women doing it. Um, and we are all very, we're very, very clear that the reason we're doing this is because this often falls to women. So it, so it also engenders a discussion about, um, for the guys in the lab about how you need to be aware of these things. Mm-hmm. We want to hear from you. What do you think of this episode? Tell us about your experiences in academia. You can reach us on Twitter at Academes Podcast by email at academespodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 919-666-7301. So one of the things that I'm really interested in, actually in my own research and then in this with respect to this issue... Um, is this interplay between kind of the collective level and the individual level. Like I've talked about, you know, at the collective level, we definitely know this is a problem. At the individual level, like, you know, you and I have both talked about some things that have happened, um, but nothing as forceful as what we see at the collective level. Um, And um, one of... The things that we we talk about here at Academes is kind of the system level issues that are facing us. And as you've, you've been talking, something that you and I talked about kind of in preparation for this interview that I found really interesting and um, probably resonates with a lot of women is that, you know, you now live in State College, Pennsylvania, and you talked about kind of <laughs> having, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so maybe I'll, I'll let you say it, but um, that you've basically not had the opportunity, you're not partnered, um, and that you've spent the time in this last postdoc effectively being off of the dating market because it it ha- where you live has such a limited pool. Aha, um, uh-huh. yes. And so that's, you know, that's <laughs> something that it, it, some people might say is unique about academia is all of the moving associated with it. Um, but clearly you've 
it's been on your mind. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that and kind of how your personal life and your professional life sync up or not. <laughs> um, I am a terrible, terrible example of work-life balance because I have no balance at all. Um, all of my friends and all of my family are very clear to me that they think I work too much and I need to stop. Um, I'm working on it. It's a it's a it's a hobby of mine. Um, when I so my my first postdoc, I, I did my graduate work in Durham, North Carolina, and then I went to Atlanta, Georgia for my first postdoc. And now I'm in State College, Pennsylvania. And, you know, Atlanta has millions of people. And State College, Pennsylvania has something like 45,000 people, if you include the undergraduate population, which I am not because they're not part of my dating pool. Um, I think that would be uncomfortable. Um, so so we're talking about a town of something like 15,000 people. And I don't know how many the surrounding areas have, but um, people who live here, in my experience, are either very transitory, like me, or they moved here for a reason. Um, they grew up here, their family is here, and they're not gonna leave. And I am very aware as a postdoc of the fact that my contract ends in 22 months or something like that. And I'm not gonna get another one. That's You, you can't postdoc in the same lab for an extended period of time. Um, you, or I guess you can, but you shouldn't. And, um, you know, I've, I've been a postdoc now for almost for over four years and it's time for me to move on. And so I enter the dating pool here knowing that whoever I meet is either going to be looking for another academic job, which brings up the problem of the two body problem and figuring out how to get a job in the same city as each other, or they're here for a reason. Um, funnily enough, I, you are correct. I have been off the dating pool for about eight months. I went back on last week and the first guy I talked to has a four-year-old here. And so he's not going to move. And I, this place is lovely. It doesn't fit me, but it is lovely. But I am a Southern girl and I'm freezing up here and I am not staying. Like hardcore will not stay up here. I will be moving back below the Mason-Dixon line as soon as I possibly can. And so, so, you know, that effectively ended that immediately because it was like, you know, I'm not staying here. Um, and so, and I could be more flexible. This is partly, this is, this is partly about me, right? I could be more flexible, but um, the likelihood that I would get a job at Penn State, which is the only university within like 60 miles or something, is slim to none. Um, I'm postdocing here. They don't, you know, you want to spread your, collect new diverse minds, not hire the same people who've been working there the whole time. And so, um, it's the likelihood is I'm going to have to go elsewhere, even if I didn't, if I wanted to stay here. Um, and so it does make it, you know, it's a little more challenging. Um, I, I was dating a person in Atlanta and actually we, we broke up for numerous reasons, but one of them was that I was leaving and he didn't want to leave Atlanta. Um, and so it, it's, it's been kind of interesting. I mean, you know, it's allowed me to have, I have a dog. It's allowed me to have more time with the dog. So, <laughs> so that's a win. Um, yeah. Other than that, I mean, work-life balance, I was better about work-life balance in Atlanta. Um, I had more friends there who had lives and, and, uh, partners or kids or, or things that they did outside of work. And, um, here it's, 
the population here is so different. It's either people who are, like I said, people who move back here and are going to stay here forever or people who are very transitory and generally have partners elsewhere. And so um, it just means that we, we work a lot. There, there's, I, don't, I don't know what it is about the culture of this area, but, but there seems to be an awful lot of work happening here on the weekends. Um, that wasn't necessarily the case at my first postdoc at Emory. Um, so I'm, I'm working on it. It's a it's an ongoing process. Although I may probably get back off the dating scene soon, because because again, it's all it's just confirming what I thought before. <laughs> so on another topic, I I wanted to go back to something that we were talking about before with respect to one solution that you identified as basically looking at who you cite um, and making sure mm-hmm. that they're that it the gender representation or along any demographic is proportionate to what's available. So you're not oversighting, for example, men. Um, Right. And this is, you know, let's see, I'm um, how many years out of my I'm seven years out of my PhD program. um, And I imagine that your field, like mine, is somewhat insular. I mean, it's re- you really get to know people in the field, and it becomes like a big extended family, and you get to the point where kind of everybody knows everybody, um, and there are personalities, um, and there mm-hmm. are people who are, you know, there are the people who are very social, outgoing, um, get talks, get invited places, are, um, you know, the go-to people. Um, and then they're the people who aren't. Um, I I see in my field that in many cases that is gendered. <laughs> um, and that there's a, there's a knock-on effect of that, which is, you know, the people who are going around, they're getting invited places, they're cited because they're able to kind of disseminate their work more widely and more effectively and more um, saliently because they're they're there, they're a face and they're speaking. Um, and it, and mm-hmm. it is this kind of domino effect of, um, you can see why there's it, men are seen and they are in turn searched for <laughs> that. That is yeah. my experience uh, uh, what I've seen. Um, so I guess I just mostly wanted to highlight that as, as you know, the, who gets cited doesn't happen in a vacuum, that it's part of this really intricate system that we all play a part in. So um, I was at a conference with a colleague recently, um, and she and I were talking about a colleague of ours who is very well regarded in the field, excellent, established, lots of great ideas. And he gets invited on to everything. Um, and she was saying, I'm part of it. Like, I'm part of the problem. I invite him to be part of this. Um, he, and it's like the more you're um, the more you're cited, the more you're cited. And the more you're invited, the more you're invited. And everyone kind of builds <laughs> the monster together. So I. I wondered whether that was the case in your field and and if in hearing what I just described, if you have thoughts about other than my friend being um, aware enough to acknowledge that she's part of the problem in re- some respect. And I certainly acknowledge that I'm also part of that problem. 
what do we do about it? <laughs> I mean, so I guess that is a little true. So again, you know, I'm part of my problem is that I'm I'm so interdisciplinary that I struggle a little to have that very deep knowledge of who is who in the field. Like I know who they are, but I don't necessarily know them personally. And I probably have missed their last two conference talks because I was at a different field, you know, conference. Um, so, but I have seen that. Um, and I think that that it's a it's a thing where you you can't just target it's a problem where you can't just try to address it in one area and not try to address it in others so if you're going to work on your citations being um gender gender neutral or or equal you know you're going to have equity in your citations you need to have equity in your departmental seminar and who you invite you need to have equity in the people you interview for a job you need to have equity in the invited talks for a conference and um, who is on the panels, et cetera. And, you know, it turns out that, that yeah, you, you know, it is true that we we highlight those rock stars, right? We, we call, they get a thousand invitations because they've given a thousand talks and, and everybody, they're the first person that you think of. Um, and so some of this falls on them in terms of, you know, they don't have, have to take every single speaking engagement. You could also suggest some other people, um, which is what we do as reviewers, right? We, as a reviewer, if someone, the people in the, that are the the experts in the field, the ones that everybody knows, you know that they get asked to review a thousand manuscripts a year. You know they don't do it. So they have, I mean, so what they could do, and I don't know if they are doing this, but what they could do is suggest other good people in a gender equal and, you know, um, racially equal way, if possible. Um, and, and, you know, for our panels, it's not like you're going to have a bad panel if you don't have the expert on this. There's never one, pro- there's never a problem that only one person is working on and only one person publishes good work on. Um, and so it is more exciting to have that person come, but you know, you could invite a newbie as well. Um, panels are usually made up of four or five people. So, you know, um, I think it's a, it's a thing that we all, you do a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit in a little bit in all these different areas to make a difference, um, as opposed to being responsible for solving the entire problem just through your own seminar invites, you know, or panel invites. Um, and that's, that's an area that I've, I've tried to pay attention to. Um, it's, I've been lucky in that I, I'm not responsible for any seminar invites right now. So I haven't had to take a look at that list. You know, the only place I can really control is who am I citing? Um, and I have to confess that that is a dream, not something that I actually have gone back through and checked (laughs) for many of my, you know, it's, it's a thing that I really want to do. Um, it's a thing that I am not doing right now. So, um, it's, it's a, you know, it's, uh, so even I'm, I'm falling down on the job right now. Well, um, even though I've suggested it, um, it speaks to the need (laughs) for systems to, to make it easier. I mean, we've got apps for everything. (laughs) Why couldn't we have an app like a gender equity (laughs) app? 
right. Like, right, right, right. I would love, oh man, oh man. Okay, some some tech developer out there, please develop a website where I can input my the, the paper DOIs and it will tell me the gender breakdown oh my gosh. of my site. Please, by first and last Data author, please. dream. Oh my God. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yes. Okay. I wonder who I can recruit I know, to do right. that because that would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, it's actually, speaking of websites, I don't know if you've seen this recently, but there is actually someone built a website that shows you what a small amount, it's called, it's called below the waterline. And it talks about, or no, I'm sorry, it's called doesgenderbiasmatter.com. And it, it literally graphs out for you what a 1%, 5%, or 10% bias in favor of men or women looks like at various levels of company organization. So it's a, it's a, um, it's a theoretical company, um, and it's, it talks about performance reviews, et cetera, and this is... It's a website, and so you can look at the graph, and if you're looking at it, and I'm looking at it right now, and it, it talks about bias favoring men, a 1% bias, and at level one, um, there's 52% women and 48% men, and by the time you get to level eight on the corporate hierarchy, there's 67% men and 32% women, and that's just a 1% bias. <laughs> and so when we talk about these little individual things that occur, this individual experience that you had or I had or, or our friend had, even a 1% difference makes a big difference on the, in the long run, right? We've talked about this with things like retirement, right? If you don't, if, if an extra $500 every year makes a huge difference 50 years mm -hmm. from now. Um, and, and I think that those are all good ways to think about this, that this tiny little salary gap or this tiny little 5% difference in who gets published, you know, it, it matters. 5%... Five, if, if on a reviewing panel that's all male, a paper that has a female last author is 5% less likely to be accepted, that is one resubmission for every 20 submissions for a woman that she has to do mm -hmm. that a guy doesn't. And maybe that doesn't sound like a big deal, but if you submit four or five papers a year, that's one every three or four years. <laughs> so that's, it's like, that is not an insignificant no. number when you think about it but that it's way. It's a pain in the butt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, little things, little things. Can you make your citations, someone please build this website. Can, can you make your citations gender equal? Can you make your seminar? That is something my department here at Penn State is very conscious of and I love it. Can you make your seminar very, are you very conscious about making sure that you're bringing in people of color, especially women of color? <laughs> And, and white women as well to speak on all sorts of topics. Because you know what I find to be amazing is that sometimes those people, those new people are doing just the coolest stuff that you would never have heard of if you had brought in Mr. You know, expert in the field, top guy, gets all the awards, et cetera. Right. Um, and so you know, there's pros and cons, but like, that's a way to see also the future of your field. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, those are things I, that, that I love to see in this department in terms of, of, um, this department's been very conscious about hiring, about their hiring practices, about even in their grad school, um, applicants about 
reminding everyone beforehand that GRE scores are not really representative of success in graduate school and that often marginalized groups score less well because they are less able to access things like prep classes or have time to go and study for days and days and days. Um, and, you know, talking about how the experiences of marginalized groups might be different than the experiences of majority groups and how we need to look at the entire application and how letters of recommendation are are a little biased. And, um, and so I love that about this department. They've been very, very good at sort of making sure they're all aware of what the biases might be before they start looking at candidate applicants or candidate applications or graduate applications. And, you know, I, I think there's um, a researcher at Harvard named Iris Bonet who talks about um, basically design, uh, applying design principles to um, increase gender equity. And one of the things, for example, she talks about is is putting up pictures of women leaders, equal numbers of women leaders and male leaders yeah. um, to kind of give people to, to reorient what a leader looks like to people. Because, you know, we all we all know that the, the um, stereotype of what a professor looks like and a professor does not look like I don't know what you look like, but I'm assuming most people don't visualize you when they think of, <laughs> you know, somebody in your position. Really? What? Um, and so you, as, uh, an experience I had um, came up in my head as you were talking about kind of some of these structural things that it sounds like Penn State is doing and that you've seen in other institutions. And I don't know how to... Um, design away the experience that that I witnessed, and that was that I was on a steering. I'm sorry, on a, a hiring committee um, and a search committee, and we did phone interviews, and um, two of the people in question um, were really highly regarded, um, but the chair of the search committee mentioned how. Um, one applicant was, you know, very measured in his responses and didn't um, talk any more than was necessary, very clearly and succinctly answered the questions, whereas the other applicant um, was v- verbose and um, talked quite a lot. And at even in the moment, and I'm not usually good at this, um, I didn't actually say anything, but it it was very clear to me that that was a very gendered assessment of what happened. Women do tend to be more verbose than men. Um, and I, I, as we talk about kind of these things that can be done, quotas and um, these design principles, I'm not sure how to address those sorts of tiny biases. Like when you think about the Harvard case about the um, the Asian American students suing for um, this kind of like personality component of the application yeah. and being discriminated against, that is where implicit bias slips in. Um, and and what can be done about that, except for eliminate in the case of that Harvard issue, eliminating the personality component or <laughs> and and allowing people the flexibility to express their opinions about applicants. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. You know, all of these kinds of things are 
They are things that there are things in science that we in STEM that we can address. And one way to to start to have those conversations is, you know, and I and I firmly think that this should happen at every university that before you do before you hold a search for a, a job candidate or before you look at grad school applications, I think that everyone should have to go undergo an effective unconscious bias or diversity and inclusion training um, to become aware of those kinds of things, right? But I think that, on, I mean, truthfully, thinking about your example, the I actually don't think that that is a solvable thing without a more of a of a society level structural change and recognizing that, you know, the default behavior does not have to be male. That um, that that there that women and men are allowed to be different and neither one is better or worse than the other. That the default behavior, the best behavior is not succinctness. <laughs> um, and such that she then becomes penalized for being verbose. Um, I think, but on, I mean, truthfully, I, I wouldn't even know how to address that in that situation. <laughs> I think I feel exactly the same way. I'm, I feel like, you know, I'm replaying it in my head and thinking the only way to have addressed that would have been to say, that's a very gendered comment, but you can't even, you couldn't even necessarily back that up for this particular instance, because again, it was two, one person against one person, right? It wasn't a whole group of people that this, this person was evaluating. It was two people. And, um, you know, it's very easy then to say, well, you know, her answers were both verbose and they were, they were not good. Um, and, and, you know, and so I think that that is, but, but to go back to sort of like how to address it, if we can develop the, the knowledge and the understanding and, and make everyone aware of how these kinds of things, both tiny and large, affect decisions like that, you know, you, the, like, here's the good news. In that meeting, that person said this, this candidate was verbose and this person was succinct. And you didn't immediately say oh yeah you're right that was that was really obnoxious you know she just would not stop talking you thought you know that's a that's a really gendered thing to say because women in general are more verbose and that she shouldn't be penalized for that right and so like even your own personal awareness of that affected i'm sure how you talked about it how you voted or whatever and i think that is those are the small ways to do it right your friend realizing that that she is guilty of of inviting the big male speaker or the big speaker who is also male you know it's the tiny little things we all make our own instrumental change um actually interesting you to go way back to something you said early at the beginning of that comment um about replacing photos the photos mm -hmm. of so that so that the photos in the hallway are are equal in gender, show a diversity of representation. Um, there was a really interesting paper just published in Geosphere on the probability of um, staying in geosciences based on the number of female faculty. So the number of female STEM career role models. Mm -hmm. And they show a huge increase 
in as the number of role models increases, the number of female undergrads who want to stay in the subject increases as well. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and and you know that's that's in terms of of faculty hires, but you can also do that with. Um, with the photos on the wall, you know, that happened to me. I was at a, I went to a doctor's office one time and it was weird to realize that I didn't feel very welcome in that space because they had photos of everybody. This was like at a university hospital or something and they had photos of all of the doctors who had worked there. And up until, or all the classes of interns that had come through there and up until something like 1992, it was all white guys. <laughs> and it was, it was, you know, this was like on the walk to the bathroom and I walked back and I was like, oh my God, like, wow, what a powerful mm-hmm. message of we have, we are still thinking about letting you enter this space. <laughs> like we, okay, all right, fine. Okay. I guess we'll let you in uh, if we have to, you know, um, it was, it was very disconcerting to walk through this hallway of every year having a photo of the class of the interns or whatever and and to have just decades of photos of white guys and then like oh look there's one woman oh my god there's a person of color you know like like it was it was it you had to like really search for them and and um I went back to my alma mater actually um and was looking at at the photos in front of the big lecture halls and they are both white guys Mm. they're all white guys down the hallway and i was thinking you guys have some have had some really fantastic like women donors too i know they're donors right they're not like the scientists that have worked there but like they're they're you know there's buildings named after some of them so i know they exist like couldn't we put some of those paintings up for them and you know um it was very it's it's something you start to notice and and um i think that you know we feel like we feel like we've been talking about this ad nauseum for years and but clearly we aren't reaching reaching all the ears because because we haven't changed all of it yet and so i guess we keep putting out publications and collecting data and talking about it and being that obnoxious person at the committee meeting that's like, well, actually. Well, and I'm glad that you brought that up because you brought this up previously as well. And I certainly feel this way. Um, and and certainly with respect to that meeting I talked about where the chair of the search committee talk, you know, made what I thought was a gendered comment. Um, I really like that person who said that and he 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 didn't I know he didn't mean anything by it I don't think he had any clue um and I I am very conscious of the way I well I I try to be measured in the way I interject and I think it's a craft (laughs) yes yes it is um but I I'd like to develop that craft and and to equip um, everybody, men and women, um, with with tools that um, can effectively interject and not alienate people because, um, you know, we've we've all witnessed the, the person who is not effective in communicating their perspective on this issue and right. alienate everybody around them. And I don't want to be that person. Well, and I think, you know, what's funny is one of the things they found, I believe, to be the most effective in terms of uh, things like the, uh, things that 
or training that reduces discrimination and increases inclusion and diversity are is bystander training. Hmm. So the training of how to interject into a situation that you are maybe not a part of or, or whatever, but how to basically make everyone in the situation, you know, be the person who stands up, basically. Um, it's something that I desperately, it's it's a type of training I desperately want to take. I haven't had the opportunity yet. Um, but I, that is my, my understanding is that that has been shown to be the most effective um, in terms of making real change in people's behaviors uh, following up. And I think that, you know, like you said, that's a skill. That is, there are, there are things, I am definitely guilty of, of being one of those people who is more likely to alienate than not. It's so hard not to. Shall we say? I mean, when you're speaking <laughs> up against the majority perspective, it, that's inherently alienating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and well, and you know, and I, I know that I, at least in terms of like my family and probably my closest friends, I know that I sound like I am a broken record. Like I, I, I am well aware that my family is very tired of hearing about this <laughs> as a problem. And, you know, and I know this because they flat out told me that, um, that they're, that Jesus, you, that's all you talk about. Um, and, you know, and part of the reason that it's all I talk about is that is that I love and I'm, I'm going to have to not let them listen to this, but um, I love my family dearly. They are fantastic people. And just like this chair that you were talking about, they are people I love. They are great people. And they are a little problematic sometimes. <laughs> and so part of the reason that I talk about it, although I don't tell them that, is that they are part of my target audience. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I love, I, I'm literally not going to allow him to listen to this, but I love my dad so much and he raised me to be strong and assertive and all those things that women, that bossy women get called. And his nickname for me growing up was bossy. Interesting. And that's very gendered and very negative. <laughs> and you know, it's, or it wasn't bossy. It was boss woman. That was my nickname growing up was boss woman. And, and, you know, it's so, so I, we all are struggling with this, right? We're all struggling with this. We're all, and, and those of us who we, we all fall down on the job a little, you know, my goal every day is just not to fail, right? Not to suck as, or not to fail as badly as I could have failed. Like, I know that I'm going to fail a little, but the goal is to not fail as badly as it's possible to fail. And, and from that understanding that, you know, I'm doing my best, I'm going to make mistakes. I definitely have said things that someone has come to me later and said, "Mm." (laughs) you know, you could have phrased that a little differently. Um, I definitely am guilty of that. And so I try to use that knowledge to affect empathy for those people who I know don't mean either mean it the way that it comes out or just haven't dug deeply enough into this topic to have to be aware of what they're saying as a problem mm-hmm. right um and and that helps although you know again like i said i am more likely to alienate people because it's something that i care so much about that i just can't not i can't just sit there and say like and just not say anything <laughs> um 
to someone. And, and in fairness, again, I'm a postdoc, so I am not on any of this hiring. I'm not, I haven't yet been in a position where, you know, my loud-mouthed declaration of these problems has been has been tested <laughs> um with the exception of that column and and you know so i guess in that case i found that i i was not going to let that hold me back but i haven't yet been in that same sort of position where i where i could say something and to someone more powerful than i am or that had control over my career and the, and not you know i i haven't had to make that decision yet yeah um and i, I truthfully i don't know what my answer will be I have no idea. Um, I have asked myself that so many times, and I I don't know. Um, but I try to think through the scenarios and how I could could address it so that I'm not like frozen in the moment, um, so that I have a choice, I guess. Right. Well, in my experience, it is a a pretty constant calculus. <laughs> Um, and as I as I get older and more mellow, um, it, it's a little bit more reasoned, um, less passionate calculus, um, but still still something uh, that I spend a lot of time trying to figure out whether it's worth it or not. Um, but so as we finish, I want this is a, a game that we play with all of our um, all of the people who come Ooh. on academes, and that is. Um, a simple question. Katie mm-hmm. Grogan, is being a woman in academia a dream? Is it a game? Or is it a scam? Can it be all of the above? <laughs> so, some people have been known to answer that way. But you have to I contextualize like, a little bit. I feel like um, for me, I mean, I don't dream about being a woman in STEM, right? I am a woman and my dream is to be in STEM. My dream is not to be a a woman scientist, right? With the emphasis on the woman part. Um, Given the context of being a woman in STEM, I try to use my gender as an inspiration to other women um, and other marginalized groups. Uh, what was the other one? A game or a scam? Um, I mean, it's definitely a game. <laughs> you know, we've been to, right now. It is anyway. I mean, academia in general is a game, right? All all jobs are a game. You have to say the right things and not offend your boss, and uh, you know, do the right amount of schmoozing, whatever. Uh, I think women in marginalized other marginalized groups have a few more rules to that game and a few more pieces they have to keep track of. Um. I, yeah, I I hope it's not too much of a game because I will tell you right now, I'm not very good at playing games. (laughs) And so if it is a a huge game, then I, you can talk to me in a few years and I will probably be elsewhere. (laughs) Um, And as far as the scam, I think that parts of it are, to be honest, parts of it are because, because we have been told that... We've been told until very recently that there wasn't any bias. We have been told until recently that we had just as good of a chance. Um, And now we know that that isn't true. Um, And, you know, being an academic scientist right now is a little bit of a scam in general because because for decades, because now you're being you're being held up to the same 
standards that got you tenure a few decades ago and yet the funding is so abysmal compared to four decades ago that that it is a little bit of a scam um being a woman in stem is yeah yeah in in all it is all of those for me it is more of a dream right now um i think that answer would change depending on my career stage and how i was feeling that particular day (laughs) fair enough (laughs) well right like like if i if i uh was I just gotten a paper rejection. I would tell you that it was a complete scam. <laughs> complete scam. I think that will resonate with everybody listening. Yes. Academes was produced by Sarah Birkin, Mara Bookbinder, and me, Whitney Robinson. Our editors include Jonathan Young and Logan Casterdale. We get administrative support from Victoria Asare, Tamara Hewson, and Molly Horrock. Our artwork is by Melissa Hudgens at Leafy Greens Design. You can reach us via Twitter at Academes Podcast, by email at academespodcast at gmail.com, or by leaving us a voicemail at 919-666-7301.